Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Roman Skaskiu, uh, who is right now somewhere in Poland. Um, and he, had, he has just returned from being in Ukraine. Roman, why don't you tell, why don't you tell the audience um, you know, a little bit about your background, why you're in Ukraine, and then we'll get, you know, then we'll start asking questions about what's like the ground truth of what's what's really happening on the ground in the last 24 to 48 hours. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. Uh, I think I'll start our story when I was a student at Stanford and three times a week, I would wake up at five and wait for Sean to come by and pick me up in a car because there was no ROTC department at Stanford. I think it got burnt down by the hippies in the 70s. Yeah, so that's right. Sean, Sean and I and two other guys, we would drive down to Santa Clara University thrice a week and do ROTC training. I finished my computer science degree in March of 2000, which is the same month as the height of the first internet bubble. But while my fellow computer science students were getting six-digit signing bonuses, uh, I went and became an infantry officer. Uh, had what turned out to be a six-year career. About half of it was spent on deployment. I had three deployments, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and eventually finished with that. Somewhat disillusioned, somewhat cynical, uh, but having had a lot of uh, a lot of great adventures and memories. Though I, I don't, I would advise myself against it if I could go back in time, just because I don't think uh, I don't think the risk was worth it. The risks that I ended up taking. But you, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to afford Stanford. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to afford Stanford, though, right? Like they they paid for your eighty like percent of your education, right? Uh, half, half, half. I, I think. Oh, they changed the, it up on you. The they fully qualified guys like you got the bigger ones. Well, no, I think they switched it up. They switched it up your year. Like I was the last year that they paid eighty percent. Okay. Yeah. But in any case, uh, I have Ukrainian roots. Uh, my parents both. Uh, emigrated as or they fled Ukraine as kids they lived in uh, separately uh, in displaced persons camps which were a big uh, feature after World War II and then eventually made their way to the United States so I grew up kind of half in a Ukrainian community uh, about 10 years ago in 2012 after visiting a bunch of times I moved my life to Ukraine uh, had a couple startup failures there and a, a startup success, which I'm happy to say. Uh, got married, started a family there. Uh, about six months ago, my wife and I made the decision to move to the United States because my oldest kid was ready to start school. So we actually, I actually finished uh, closing on a home uh, the third day of the war. Three, uh, two days after the Russian invasion, we closed on a home. Uh, my family is safely in North Carolina. Uh, my wife tells me to hurry up and get over there because she has my credit card. And, uh, <laughs> That's a great motivation, right? <laughs> and I went, uh, I went back to Ukraine to make myself useful, help a few specific people, and help uh, generally. And I've, uh, I've stayed in Poland. I've been across the border a couple times, and I'm just trying to make myself useful and support what I think is a critical cause. Now, are you, are, you're a U.S. citizen, of course, but are you a Ukrainian citizen as well? No, I had a, a permanent residency. A, a, okay, permanent re re residency in Ukraine. 
Yep. Okay, and then the, the other quick quick questions I have for you, just to round out your military experience. You're also, you were in the 82nd Airborne, so you were um, Airborne qualified. You were also, you actually Jumpmaster qualified, if yes. I understand properly. Yes. And then you also uh, are Ranger qualified as well. Yes, I finished Ranger school. All right, that must have been uh, a blast. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's, let's kind of get down to brass tacks. Um, we see a lot of of what's happening on you know television with with the war. Um, that said, our 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 government has effectively cut out any information that we're getting from the Russian side. Now, I I, I fully understand most of it's going to be propaganda of some sort, but um, having been lied to by my own media for so many years. Uh, what the main the main reason I'm talking to you, and I should say lied to. It's just um, many of the journalists that I've interacted with, or you know, have just read at least the U.S. in particular, because I, I generally do consume British uh, media sources. The Economist is is one of my favorite because it's it's as close to objective I think as as is possible. But what my concern is is like I have to go to the Kremlin's website to at least get that side of the story because it's not being reported on here. Um, but one of the, the main reason I'm talking to you is you were actually on the ground and I, I put more stock in that than, than anything else. And I know you, right? And, and it's typically how I get a lot of my information for other sources too. I'll call an expert who I've had a relationship with in the past um, and still do to just figure out what's really going on. I would say 80% of the time, it, it roughly aligns to what we what we see in here in the media, but about twenty percent of the time, there's something that is pretty crucial that is not reported on. So, with that long kind of buildup, um, what let's start from the like very beginning of the of the invasion. I don't want to talk about Russian military performance. We'll talk about that in the next segment. But you know, what what are you seeing? Um, is there anything that's not been reported on that is worth knowing about what's going on in Ukraine? Well, let me first mention that I completely relate to your distrust of the media. And I think there's a huge and underestimated segment of the United States that feels like they've been lied to for a long time, or at least strongly deceived. And they're and when something, some idea or narrative is held up as strongly as the Ukraine narrative is held up, they're just likely likely to disbelieve it just because of who is reporting it. Yeah, and to be clear, I want to believe it. And yeah. I, I, I was able to successfully predict the invasion because I just looked at a map. I looked at the disposition of forces, and it was obvious to me that he was going to roll in. Not because our media, you know, our media, if you would watch the media, they they didn't, they, they seem to be skeptical that he was going to do anything, right? Yeah, um, well, uh, in defense of the media skepticism, that is how Russia captured the city of Yongqing men by not doing anything, but by exploiting an opportunity. Yongming Chen is better known as Vladivostok. Uh, Russia spent 10 years building up forces uh, around Vladivostok, but waited until China was engaged in the Second Opium War with Britain and France, uh, and then they they just strong armed it away without much fighting because they had built up forces. So that that is sort of like the Russian way is just to 
exploit an opportunity. Open warfare took a lot of people by surprise, but I think uh, our intelligence had it right after many other you know failures in recent decades, like uh, um, U.S. intelligence called it, and they were absolutely right. So what's so the narrative you asked me like is there anything important that's being missed? Um, there is absolutely no universe in which Russia wanted anything remotely resembling uh, 20 days of intense fighting without accomplishing any of their major objectives. Right. So there are still like um, video bloggers out there like saying that Russia's winning, but there is no universe in which this is not a catastrophe for them. I think that the best you can say is that some of the Ukrainian claims may be exaggerated. Um, like the ghost of Kiev is, is one of them, right? Yeah, except I don't think anyone ever believed that. I think tearing down the ghost of Kiev is a bit of a strong man because I don't think people believed it was true. Or I mean, I'm sure some people did, but... Oh, in the, U- in the U.S., it was constant. It was constant. It was like really? constant. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you know, you, you also have to take into account, like, just the stress and trauma of being invaded by the second largest army. People get very religious when they're under stress, and they, they look for saviors and try to identify saviors. So I think, I think that was part of it. And then w- what's definitely true is that Russia lost a shocking number of aircraft, and there was one credible video of a dogfight over Kiev in which the Russian plane got shot down. So I think just people took those things, the stress, the Russian losses, and the one picture of a dogfight and invented that narrative. But I don't think, I, I have not seen it like pushed as, as reality. I saw it pushed as kind of like a myth and a meme. Yeah, the way that the U.S. media handled it is it was reality until, until rumors came out that it wasn't true and they just went silent. Right. Okay. Never, you know, never accept response. You know, they never accept responsibility for putting something out that was um, yeah, so, not true. So I, I think I think that's a fair criticism of the narrative, but it's it's like taking the form of exaggerations and and stuff like that. The general story is is the story. The general story is that the an autocratic government attacked its much smaller democratic neighbor. Uh, there are problems with Ukrainian democracy, but we've seen like five or six changes of power between politicians who are bitter, bitter rivals. So, you know, it, it is a democracy. Um, the story is a fairly indiscriminate bombing of Ukrainian cities. And the story is Russia taking horrific losses. Um, in, in nine years in Afghanistan, they suffered 15,000 casualties. And the trauma of that is one of the underlying factors in the collapse of the Soviet Union, according to many historians. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, according to Ukrainian numbers, they took those same casualties in three weeks. According to numbers reported by the US Defense Department, they took 7,000 casualties. So about half that number in three weeks, uh, which is still devastating. And as I understand, the U- US numbers come with the caveat and admission that they really have no good way of measuring yeah my understanding is what they're what they're doing is they're taking social media reports and let's say there's a t80 tank that's been destroyed uh you know and then you basically you know so they'll say okay three crewmen 
um, would not have survived that. And then they'll obviously assign some probability that the tank was abandoned before it was destroyed. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think even 7,000, right? That's 5%. If you assume the force that came in initially was about 150,000. I'm hearing back and forth. It, it reached a peak of like 200,000, but yeah, that's um, but if you just do the math, that's, that's you're halfway to decimation, right? Literally, um, which is, and, and now the one thing I think the Western media gets way wrong, and you can you can uh, qualify this for me, is that you have U.S. military experts telling you that um, you know the seven like seven seven or seven thousand deaths plus fourteen to twenty one thousand uh, wounded, which I think is the, and I don't know if that is an inclusive number, if that includes dead and wounded, or if it's in addition to dead and wounded. But either way. Uh, it's close to the number that they keep throwing around is about 10%. And they say that usually when that, when a unit sustains 10%, co- you know, combat casualties, it renders that unit ineffective. And I think while that is true for Western militaries, any student of World War II would know that's complete bullshit for the Russian military. Like, they'll, like in, in, and again, you're the expert on this, I'm not, but my understanding is, is that for the Russians, soldiers are just like bullets and fuel. You expend them and then you send more once you expend them. So my understanding is that even in World War II, Russian units could sustain much higher casualty rates until I think they were rendered combat ineffective at like 50% loss or something like that. But that's like that numbers in the back of my head. I haven't really rechecked it in the last 15 to 20 years. So is that accurate or is that a little bit extreme? Uh, That's like the question for sort of the military analysts, like how many casualties can they take before becoming combat ineffective? Uh, It is completely consistent with how the Russian military has been for for all of its history. Uh, American generals observed during World War II their disregard for human life, both their own and uh, that of the enemy and that of civilians. Um, yeah, it's it's a theme that plays out, and Ukrainians certainly feel like we're just at the latest chapter. Uh, let, let me ask another, change gears a little bit. Pr- prior to the invasion, how much support was there internally on the Ukraine side for the Russian point of view? Oh, that's an interesting question. And before though, before though, because I'm going to ask you after too, right? Yeah. Well, let me let me go back even further and talk about the support in 2014 because that's something that I I researched pretty well. So I I believe the Russian propaganda. It's so good that even a a patriot like me believed it, and I believed that uh, the distinction between Russians and Russian speakers wasn't that strong. And I believe that the desire in Eastern Ukraine was to join Russia. And I have advocated for just letting them go and and put the borders where people want the borders. But it turned out that in Donetsk and in Luhansk, uh, the the support for Ukraine versus Russia was about 50-30. 50% of the people supported 
uh, Ukraine and wanted Donetsk to remain a part of Ukraine, and about 30 thought it should join Russia. That was before hostilities began. And there were very big pro-Ukrainian protests in Donetsk before the 2014 invasion, and they were put down very brutally. Russians did the same thing that they did in Estonia a few years prior. In Estonia, they removed some Soviet monument from the center of uh, Tallinn, not not mm-hmm. even to destroy it. They just moved it to the outskirts of town because Estonia was devastated by the Soviet occupation. I think 17% of their population was deported to Siberia. And when they moved them, the Russians just bust in a bunch of hooligans just to riot. And that's what happened to the pro-Ukrainian protests in Donetsk in 2014. Uh, four people were killed. Um, and that was kind of, and their secret police started taking more and more control. And that was the end of the pro-Ukrainian movement in Donetsk. Refugees in 2014 from the Donetsk area fled 70-30 to Ukraine versus to Russia. Uh, so that's very informative as well. And uh and I, yeah, so I think before the war, it, it was about 50-30, and it started, it became even more so. After after the war. Now, after the war, and after they saw how they were treated. Now, were there any instances in your experience of Ukrainian citizens collaborating with Russian intelligence prior to the war? Oh, yeah. Like Russian intelligence had Ukraine completely penetrated before 2014. Uh, Yeah. And and it continued to this day. I'll tell you a story that I I know of. I think we emailed about this. uh, And this is just like a rumor. Like when there's an incident, like everyone just gets on their phones and talks about it. Like uh, I heard from a friend in in Kharkiv, like when a plane gets shot down, everyone just, did you see that? Did, Did you see it through your window or they send each other links where they can find a video like it's it's a real real like surreal experience where uh social media meets modern warfare but uh that, the, the one story that i had relayed to you and i'll mention for your viewers it was um it was a successful entrepreneur in a town he owned a supermarket and uh and he was a russian informant the russian informants have been doing things like uh just First of all, just communicating information about Ukrainian troop movements. Secondly, putting these little metal markers down, which I guess could be seen by Russian aircraft. Uh, we, I don't know what he was doing, but the rumor was that he was compromised and he knew he was compromised. And so he was found hung, whether he killed himself or someone killed him, we don't know. This story leaves a lot of details open, like, mm-hmm. but that's all I got for you. Uh, I, I will also point out that one way that Russian tries to exert control in other countries is by investing in successful people in different cities and just keep them as their network. So it's easy to imagine that a, a local entrepreneur was like, he got his capital from Russia and remained loyal to them. No, it's, I think a lot of this stuff is, just, you know, imagine, you know, it's it's difficult for most people to imagine bombs falling in your neighborhood and finding out that the neighbor has been placing, you know, little metal objects to help those planes find targets. I, I can only imagine the mob justice that you would see in this country. If that, you know, you find a discovered a neighbor um, was doing things like that. Now you mentioned, um, you know, something about 
you know, citizens being sent to far-flung areas in, in Russia. There's a report yesterday in the New York Times about Maripol and civilians being sent on buses to, uh, I think, initially Taganrog was the city, which is a city, I, I think, on the either adjacent to the Crimea or on, 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 on like in Crimea. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I saw something a little bit more ominous that they would be sent to even uh, further or farther flung cities in Russia. The other, the other, the other piece that was mentioned, and again, a lot of it's still rumor because the, you know, the Ukrainian authorities have, have an incentive to, to make it as dramatic as possible. Right. So there's this, yeah, there was also an allusion to potentially or to potential slave labor, Right, because they didn't have any money, they didn't have any passports, they had nothing to identify them, and they therefore had no means of providing for themselves in wherever Russia is sending them. And then the last piece before we get into this, uh, you know, before I kind of you have a chance to respond, is prior to the invasion, I read reports about Russians having kill lists and camp lists, like who to round up and put in camps and, and things like that. So with all that on the table, this is kind of all from Western media sources. How much truth is there to this, and 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 how how much does it fit into the Russian military playbook? Yeah, I I don't have very much access to information that you don't in terms of these types of things because I don't know anyone individually involved. I guess I do read Ukrainian and Russian news sources, but but. I'll tell you that I believe these things to be true just because they're so consistent with uh, the historical behavior of of Russia. Um, I think I think this war is not about NATO expansion. It's about Russian identity, which has always been very fragile because they've expanded so far. And a big part of their identity is taken from Ukrainian identity. Uh, Tsar Peter went so far as to send people all over Europe to collect historic texts and destroy some of them, rewrite others to make Russian and Ukrainian history more similar. Because Russia and Ukraine are both competing for the legacy of Kiev and Rus. Um, so, uh, and Russia, I would say they rose they rose as a vassal state of the Golden Horde and for 300 mm-hmm. years were a vassal state of the Golden Horde. They portray themselves as breaking away from those traditions, whereas I think most Ukrainians think would say that, no, they just continue those traditions under a different, you know, it was a diff- different people, but they just continue those traditions. So getting back to your questions of, uh, of brutality and kill lists, let me cite a few historic examples and historic observations that demonstrate that this behavior is perfectly consistent with how they've always done things. So there was a French writer and traveler named Marquis de Custine. And there are many people that say the same thing, but he's extraordinarily quotable. He's also from the first part of the 19th century. So it's like 200 years ago. And Marquis de Custine, like I think a lot of, uh, a lot of Westerners today who see like the, think they perceive the decline of the West, Marquis de Custine was looking eastward for an alternative uh, political system. And he was so horrified by what he found in Russia that he is now best known as a critic of Russia, even though he went there looking for a, an alternative to what he saw as the decline of, in his case, France. 
So he wrote that uh, what does surprise me is that among all the voices testifying to the glory of this single man, the Tsar, not one rises above the chorus to speak for humanity against the miracles of autocracy. You can say of the Russians, both great and small, that they are intoxicated with slavery. Officially, such brutal tyranny is called respect for unity and order, and this bitter fruit of despotism appears so precious to them that it cannot be purchased at too high a price. Let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, List, I think many people are familiar with that KGB agent who defected to the United States, Yuri Bez Bezmenov. He has some mm -hmm. incredible videos where he talks about subversion and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, and yeah. He talks about forming lists of influencers down to extremely small influencers. And he said, that, I believe he projected that 85% of KGB resources were not dedicated to like James Bond style espionage, but towards putting their message out through those influencers. So, so he, he talks about keeping lists of people, lists of people who are supportive, lists of people who are not supportive. And there is perfect continuity between Yuri Bezmenov's KGB and the modern Russian FSB. So there is absolutely no reason to believe that they have not maintained that practice. And I think it touched me personally. I was a big Ron Paul supporter, uh, in part mm -hmm. because he was one of the few politicians who spoke against the Iraq war, which has indelibly marked my own life. Um, and I, I had a blog uh, where I just reposted a lot of Ron Paul content. And when the invasion of Georgia by Russia happened in 2007 or eight, eight. Uh, it was amazing. I got a financial sponsor for my blog. I got paid like $40 a month to have a little link ad. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the only time anyone ever paid me for blogging. Uh, and I think in retro, it was a link to some crazy site filled with advertisements for credit cards. But I think I was just identified as somebody who is pushing along Russian talking points. Because I was copy paste, I was pasting stuff from like, uh, who's that idiot? Uh, he writes often for Lou Rockwell. I forgot. It was a lot, in a lot of libertarian circles went completely out of their minds with Russian propaganda. And I think because I was copying their content, they just threw me a bone and I got a sponsor on my stupid little blog. And now I know that the stuff that I was posting about Georgia was nonsense, but it is perfectly believable to me to return to your question that they have lists of influencers both like in physical cities that they take over and throughout the western media landscape well i mean that's not it's not surprising right um I'm, and i'm sure we we likely do the same thing on our end probably just not a, not to the same granular level that that they they do it um what what else have you you know what's the what's kind of the current state of of things right now? Um, I mean, I can I can just tell you from what I've seen on social media and on the news, it appears that the Russian advance is kind of stalled along the Donets River. Uh, it looks like they haven't gone further west or farther west. Yeah, further west than that. Um, and then, of course. They're starting to inch their way around Ukraine to uh, Ukraine, uh, Kiev to encircle it. 
Um, it, it looks like there's kind of pockets of resistance, I think, in Sumi. Um, and then there's another city that begins with an N. I don't, I don't, there's like a kind of a little mini cauldron in there. There's also, you know, there's obviously a strong pocket of resistance in uh, Mari- Mariupol. Um, particularly with the the Azov uh, battalion, so let's 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 talk about the Azov battalion um, for, for a moment. In the in the media, um, who basically you know our current media, which basically calls everybody to the to the right of JFK as a Nazi, as literally a Nazi. Um, it's pretty curious that they're a little quiet on the on the Azov battalion. And I know the reality is much more nuanced than, you know, than, than propaganda on either either side. But uh, you know, the Russians are claiming that they're you know far right, uh, you know, Nazis with um, or neo Nazis with a lot of SS symbolism and things like that. But they're also extremely an extremely effective military fighting force. So, what what's your take on them? For, you know, from based based on being on the ground and and how how should we think about them and how should we incorporate? You know, how do you expect the narrative to incorporate such an inconvenient set of facts in the West? I had a few acquaintances in the Azov Battalion in 2015. I traveled there with an American journalist as a as a fixer and translator uh, there mm-hmm. to Mariupol and then past Mariupol to the village of Shirokine where the, the Azov guys had positions on one side and the Russians far on the other side of Shirokine. And we look through their high power binoculars at the Russian positions. So I, I and, the, and these were literal Russians. They weren't Russians. I mean, they weren't like non-Russian Russian speakers. They were literal Russian conscripts. Uh, well, I don't know if they were conscripts or volunteers, or if they were like the DNR, LNR, which were like the the minority of people from Donetsk who who thought it was a good idea to to break away. Um, mm. But anyway, like so, I was I was pretty close to them, and I, I've maintained contact with a few Azov guys. Uh, they chose to use the double S letter in their symbol, which was, uh, you know they'll forever be entertaining accusations of being neo-Nazis. Uh, I'll tell you, they seem like some of the best human beings I ever met. Uh, there was a mm-hmm. filmmaker whose sister works in a prestigious American art museum. There was a, a, a entrepreneur who owned a law firm. Uh, there were musicians there. Uh, they, they joked that on, in their trenches, you, most people have two degrees. And on that, their trenches, most people have two years in prison. Um, I did see uh, two people with like um, like tattoos in their scalp or on their neck. By the way, what, what were they? Uh, this is actually another fast. I could I could take you on a whole. So I have a story coming out in an anthology that talks about Russian prison tattoos, right? Because they all mean something. So what what did the, what did the tattoo say? Like what what was it a knife like going through the neck? Something like that. Uh, that um, usually um, means they're the assassins. Oslo guys, I think I saw like a SS tattoo on your scalp. Oh, okay. Uh, and th- those are the kind of tattoos that, for example, would keep you out of the U.S. Army because they're, you know, neo-Nazi. So I did see two of those, but they were in like one really crappy base that the Oslo guys had. It was just like sun-baked and nothing there. And they put people there for punishment. 
So like it has attracted those types of people too. To me, they seemed like a really small minority. And you know mm-hmm. what? In my infantry platoon, we had guys told by the judge, you either go to the army or go to prison. Yep. Uh, and they were good soldiers too. Um, I think I think the Azov guys have done the most heroic thing that we've seen this century, which was to go to the most obvious and most vulnerable target of the second largest army in the world, which is Mariupol. Because if you take Mariupol, you close the land bridge from Donbass to Crimea. So they went to what is arguably the most dangerous place on earth. And they said, we will fight here to the death. And you will not hear me say anything bad about them uh, for that. I am just, uh, I'm just humbled by, uh, by what they've done. Oh, I will also tell you that they are not some like neo-Nazis who will kill non-whites or something. I shook hands with Chechens who were on the Azov Battalion and uh, the Jewish president of Ukraine yesterday gave the highest award for courage to the commander of the Azov Battalion. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that speaks for itself. So speaking of Chechens, this is just another thing that's floating around. I want to see if you have any knowledge on it. So in World War II, the Soviets would discourage desertion by having the NKVD patrol closely behind forward Russian units, and they would machine gun anybody, any deserters who would retreat and things like that. So what I've what I've heard, I haven't, I'm not going to say where I've heard it, but uh, this, my source tells me it was in the media. Um, so it's safe to talk about. But um, my his you know the the understanding is that the Chechens that are there on the Russian side are less you know there there was one attempt on Zelensky's life from like one Chechen uh, unit, but the main reason they're there is to act in that same capacity that the NKV did. In other words, kill Russians that try to retreat. There's also been, there's also a report, not a report, but there's a video floating around on social media where a Russian soldier is calling his home, his wife, and reports that his battalion was, entire battalion was destroyed and they're shooting their own wounded presumably because they can't feed them or or care for them. Are these things resonant with what your experience is in, inside Ukraine for the Russian side? Just to be clear, I don't want you to... Right. You know. And so people know there are Chechens on both sides of this conflict. There are Chechens who remember uh, Russia's destruction of Grozny. Uh, depending on what, if you take a central casualty number, let's 50,000 in the two Chechen wars, uh, that means that about 5% of the world's Chechens were killed in the 1990s. Um, so th- that's how destructive the war was. Um, so, so there are a lot of Chechens who view uh, Russia as their perennial enemy. And then there are the Kadyrovites. Kadyrov was the Chechen strongman who Putin put, Putin put in power. And uh, he appears, he does a lot of media and uh, always shows very well-equipped Chechens standing around and not really doing anything but wearing modern military gear. Um, the, the stories of Russians uh, treating their wounded or, or deserters that way do not surprise me, though I don't have any special insight there. Uh, it's just the, the historic way that Russia has done things. There are reports of that during World War II. Um, there are reports of that before the Soviet Union. Like it just, it seems to be 
Uh, it seems to be the ghost of Genghis Khan. They've just always been absolutist. Yeah. So the, the Chechens to me seem more and more like a psychological operation than a military force. So they-, they like, like, the, like the VDV? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the yeah. VDV are paratroopers. And I think I think we linked each other on, on Twitter about the article about paratroopers that- let, let, let's, let, let, let's save this for the next, okay. the next segment. Yeah, folks will have to click on the, the next segment that next episode that we're going to- um, have is going to be about Romans, given his military experience, his assessment of how the Russians are doing thus far. And I think this fits squarely into that territory, particularly since you've had experience in the U.S. military's analog to the VDV. Uh, again, I'm not trying to insult you, even though <laughs> one could one could construe this as an insult, which is the you know the 82nd Airborne and the 101st because because the VDV also does air assault. And by the way, yeah. for those who are who are uninitiated, um, airborne is people dropping into combat zones using parachutes. Air assault is um, uh, heliborne infantry, i.e., you know, being you know, sent in to operate military operations on helicopters. But I understand as VDV does both, right? I believe so. Yes, but not very much of either because training is expensive. Fair enough. Um, so in, uh, let's talk about kind of the destruction of Ukrainian cities. Are the Russians deliberately, so as of two days ago, I think they had hit with artillery, various forms of artillery, 14 hospitals throughout Ukraine. So the question I have for you is, is this deliberate or is it just rank incompetence? No, it's absolutely deliberate. This is what they always do. They they discover- but, but if they would like like deliberately, they would deliberately target hospitals. Well, it, it's either deliberate or reckless. But what's deliberate is the fairly indiscriminate bombing of cities. Um, in one of my in-laws, his town you know, gets bombed uh, regularly. Not not severely, but but regularly. So yeah, it's it's absolutely deliberate. And then they do these psychological operations where they go on television and say they're not doing it, and then they do it. Um, uh, honesty, tr truth is completely different in Russia. And I think one of the starkest examples was in 2014, where you, when Ukraine had, uh, let me paint the picture, 2014, Ukraine had a neutral status. The last American tanks left Germany for the United States in 2013. And Ukraine still had a treaty with Russia, the Budapest Memorandum, uh, mm -hmm. in which Ukraine gave up 1,200 nuclear weapons in exchange for Russian guaranteeing its sovereignty and uh, and even oh, refraining from making threats. So Ukraine also Ukraine also used to produce the SS SS19 and SS24 intercontinental ballistic missiles too. Like that was like the center of that. Yeah. But yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Continue. So, so 2014. Ukraine is neutral. NATO is standing down. There is no aggressive NATO expansion. The last tanks have left Germany. Uh, they Russia invades. They take Crimea. They take Donbass. And then Lavrov goes and says, the Budapest Memorandum does not prevent us from attacking Ukraine. Lavrov is the Russian foreign minister, that guy with the really long face and tiny glasses. Uh, he says, no, the Budapest Memorandum does not prevent us from 
attacking Ukraine, it just has one condition, and that's that we don't do a nuclear attack against Ukraine. But that's not, that's not the type of lying where they, where they try to convince you of something. That's the type of lying where they demonstrate that they are reckless and unpredictable and unconstrained by anything to sow panic. So the bombing of cities is done for the same reason. They're just demonstrating that they're they're trying to make you scared so that you just uh, you know concede. Now, have you heard have you heard reports or actually seen um, any reports of the Russians bringing in you know Africans or Syrians to take part in the war because? That you know, the, because the uh, you know, obviously that would signal they have a very high casualty rate. But have you seen any of these folks in country yet? I'm not aware of anyone who has seen Syrians or Africans. Uh, they've just we've just all seen the announcements. I've probably seen the same ones that you have. And then along the same vein, uh, Yavariv, the the bombing of of Yavariv. My understanding, and again, in, in the Western media, it was it was mentioned that there was a bombing, and then with most military pundits, it was as if we have no idea what he was trying to, to get there. Um, and the only reason I knew that there were foreign fighters, you know, stationed at Yavariv is because I think Wesley, it was either Wesley Clark or another kind of military advisor, it was General Petraeus, um, had alluded to the fact that there were forces there, but it was only in passing and not really, you know, somewhat minimized for obvious reasons, right? I think the U.S. government is totally fine with uh, U.S. military foreign fighters um, going over to Ukraine because it acts as a sort of pseudo tripwire, right? If we, if we need it. Um, but, you know, so, so the reason you wouldn't want to disseminate that information is because you wouldn't want to discourage people from signing up and, and, and supporting Ukraine. Have you? Do you know anyone who was involved, and in, and in, in what's your view of what Putin's target was? Uh, Yavariv was a military target. It was a military base. Everybody knew that it was a military base. That was not a. That was not even. They not. They didn't even try to keep that a secret. Uh, uh, there were foreign fighters there. Uh, that's been made obvious by that New York Times video of guys uh, speaking, observing it. You know, speaking American English and observing the bombing. Um, it discouraged a number of foreign fighters. Uh, I know of a of a unit that disintegrated because some people went home after that. But there, I also know that foreign fighters are still coming. I could also tell you that I lost contact with a personal friend of mine. Uh, he's Ukrainian uh, for a day, and uh, he he connected like two days after the bombing. He was fine. But he said his phone and most of his stuff got burned up. So that's pretty close to home. He said he was in pretty good spirits, though. He was, he was making jokes, yeah. <laughs> but everything's always funnier on the front line. It, it kind of has to be, right? Yeah. All right. Well, um, for folks who, you know, in the U.S. who want to help out, aside from volunteering to... To, to fight over there, is there anything that they can they can do uh, that you know you you having been on the ground would make the most difference? 
I, uh, I'm involved with uh, a few different charities, including I'm really trying to focus on one, which was a little bit more difficult thing, which was buying civilian vehicles for different Ukrainian defense forces. Uh, so I'm fundraising for that. I've bought one vehicle uh, with my own money. Uh, my company made a huge donation. And, uh, and you can link to that effort from my personal blog, which I reinvigorated when this war started. It's romaninukraine.com. Roman and you can see it. You can find it in the comments below. Yeah, so uh, the top charity is the one that I'm working on, purchasing vehicles. Uh, we hope to buy five to ten more in the coming weeks. Uh, and below that, there's another pinned message of other charities. So if you want to just do humanitarian charities, you can find those as well. Thanks for asking. Yeah, and 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 those vehicles would be used for non-combat support of the Ukrainian military, i.e., like ferrying supplies to the front, and you know, helping helping people who've been in bombed-out cities, like you know, get food to them and things like that. Correct those would be used however the units want to use them okay okay all right um with that we're going to uh go to our our second segment which is going to be more on the you know, an assessment of russian military performance thus far um but uh you know thank you roman for spending time with me today i know it's been stressful i can't i can't possibly imagine what it's what it's been like to be in ukraine at this time but good on you for going back to your your homeland and and helping out however you see fit well thank you for having me it's i appreciate it and uh, i actually do have a little downtime i'm trying to figure out what to do next so this this is good timing okay um i'll, I'll see you on the next episode thank you everyone